0: Hi, and welcome to the West Visay Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Alright, so we've been looking week after week into the Gospel of John, and this is an amazing book in which John the Apostle is inspired by God to pen a biography of Jesus, but John's gospel is unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of Jesus. Um, But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the synoptics, meaning kind of the same, but John's gospel is different. It doesn't say anything contradictory or anything like that, but it is different in contrast to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What would be a reason why John's gospel would be different? A different audience. So if you're talking to a different audience, you're gonna emphasize different things. Um, A couple months ago, me and Zinni together were teaching the elementary age kids on Sunday morning, and we talked about some of the same things we talk about in this class. But I emphasize different points. When we were talking about Jesus calming the storm, we were talking about how he told his disciples that why were you afraid, you of little faith, and we talked a lot about the fears that kids have monsters under the bed, first day of school, things like that. If I was talking to you, I might mention, maybe not monsters under the bed or first day of work, tax season or something like that, relationship problems. That might be the fears that we would emphasize because of a different audience. What particularly is different maybe about the audience that John is addressing versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Yeah, so we're several decades from Jesus now. Jesus died around what year? Yeah, about 33 A.D. around there. This is written maybe like 90. So 60, 50, 60 years after the time of Jesus, this book is written. So now you have a lot of Christians who maybe weren't ever around when Jesus was around. They're like us. You know, we weren't there firsthand when Jesus was on this earth. Now, we testify to the reality of Jesus all the time, but we weren't there when he walked on water. We weren't there when he healed the sick. So our faith comes from kind of a different angle. And also, thought processes of communities change over time. If you were to survey our country 50 years ago to now, is there different ways of thinking? Absolutely, there is. You see it in the political landscape, right? I mean, things change. There's threads and and different waves of ideas that go about. Same thing in the first century. Toward the end of the first century, when John is writing this, there's a lot of... um, this Gnostic thought that has come about, this dualistic thinking that everything flesh is bad and spirit is good, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about Jesus because of that. There's a lot of people that are denying that Jesus was the Christ or that he even ever existed. So John writes this gospel to say, look, let me prove to you that Jesus is the son of God. And what he does is in this book, he lays out a bunch of witnesses to Jesus, and we talked a lot about these witnesses these last few weeks, and what he does is it's almost like a courtroom scene. He says, I bring to the stand witness number one, John the Baptist, and he talks about John the Baptist and what John the Baptist said and did. Witness number two, you know, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, all these different witnesses to prove that Jesus is the son of God. And in the introduction to this book in chapter one, after laying out all these witnesses, he says, and you ain't seen nothing yet, basically in verse 51, he says, come along for a ride, You're about to see some amazing things in the life of Jesus. And then we looked at the miracle of Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And with all the signs that Jesus did, why did Jesus perform all the signs? What was his reason? Yeah, I like it. So that we might believe. Key verse of the book. John 20, 30, and 31, many other signs that Jesus do in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you might believe and the believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of the gospel of John is to present Jesus in a way that causes us to believe. And when you believe, you have life. That's what we want. That's why we teach Jesus today. We want people to have faith in him because if you have belief in Jesus, you can be saved versus unbelief, you're lost. That's the teaching of the Gospel of John. So we're going to, at the end of that miracle in verse 11, it talks about that this was the first of his signs that he performed that manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. After the miracle at Cana, we go into the scene now where Jesus is in the temple. What does Jesus do in the temple? Is he happy or angry? (laughs) He's mad. He overturned tables. He got angry, right? He goes into the temple, as we saw two weeks ago. I know Curtis overviewed this too. He goes into the temple, and he sees people, he calls them money changers, but what were these people doing in a nutshell? Robbing people, ripping people off, taking advantage, exploiting people, and God doesn't like that. So Jesus gets angry, he cleanses the temple, as we refer to it, you know, he drives out the money changers, and I didn't know it, but Jesus had blue eyes, apparently, back then, according to this picture. I don't know if it's historically accurate. But anyway, Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, and he'd make... Everybody's upset about this. They're like, what are you doing? By what authority do you do these signs? And Jesus says, You want to see a sign? Here's what you're gonna see: destroy this temple, and what's gonna happen? Three days I'll raise it up. Was he talking about the actual temple? No, what was he talking about? His body. Yeah, he said, look, they are they're still thinking physical, they're still thinking earthly temple. Jesus goes, You want to see a sign? And he's predicting his resurrection. Isn't that cool? Early on in his ministry, he's already telling them, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise. He predicts his resurrection. You destroy this temple, my body, three days, I'm going to raise it up. And then you work through that text, and then we got into a section that we're going to look at today of Jesus and Nicodemus. And I know Curtis didn't get too far into this, so we'll review, and then we'll pick up as we go. So John chapter 3, if you just came in, we're in the book of John, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible's divided into two parts, Old and New Testament. We're in the New Testament, and it's the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth book, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. What do you know about Pharisees? Come on, do they have a good rap or a bad rap? <laughs> Wayne says decent. Okay. A lot of times they cause problems to Jesus. Um, I'm sure there's decent Pharisees, too. We know that. But Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and a lot of times when you see the Pharisees in the New Testament, they're causing problems with Jesus and his disciples. Um, Anybody have an understanding of their doctrine a little bit? Like, what did they believe? Okay, they believed in angels in an afterlife, which was different from the Sadducees. Um, Also, the Pharisees not only held to the Old Testament, especially the Torah, um, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they also were really big proponents of following the teachings of rabbis, religious leaders. And they followed their writings in these books like the Mishnah and the larger volumes, the Talmud. And what they would do is they would filter all of their life decisions and practices through what was taught about the subject. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, okay? I mean, if you want to see what did a bunch of smart people say about something, that's good research, that's fine. However... They kind of, over time, got to a point where they elevated the teachings of Jewish rabbis to almost equal to God, and now they're binding things that God hasn't bound, and they're requiring things that God hasn't required, and all of that. But you have Nicodemus here, who's one of these Pharisees. I don't think Nicodemus is a bad guy, absolutely. I mean, I think it's probably why Wayne said they're decent, because obviously here, Nicodemus is a nice guy. Well, you have this man named Nicodemus. He's called a ruler of the Jews. He's a man of influence. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these, what word? What does it say? Signs, key word of the book. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. What is striking about when he came to Jesus? I know Curtis talked about this too. When did he come? Nighttime. Why would he do that? didn't want to be seen. He's scared a little bit. It wouldn't be socially acceptable among the majority of the Pharisees for a ruler among them to go right up to Jesus in front of everyone to go, we think you might be the Messiah. Oh no, you don't do that. That's that's, that's the end-all. You don't do not do that. You don't post that on social media. That's that's a career ender right there. You don't do that. You know, you gotta play the politics game a little bit here. You don't want people to know that you're interested in Jesus. And this happens today too. There's certain things, there's certain conversations that happen. There's beliefs that people have, but sometimes it's behind closed doors versus out in the open because they're afraid of what might happen. Transpire, which by the way, we're gonna talk about fear this morning in our sermon. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, we know, and he calls him rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. So at least he acknowledges something special about him. And we know that no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So he acknowledges that Jesus is from God. He acknowledges that he is doing signs and these signs are only possible if God is with him. Pretty cool. Then verse three. Jesus answered and said to him, and I love this, and I wish maybe there was other dialogue here. Okay, we're having just kind of bullet points. Maybe there was some more back and forth. Uh, To me, it seems kind of odd that Nicodemus goes, hey, how are you? My name's Nicodemus. And Jesus goes, truly, truly, I say unto you. Maybe that's how Jesus talked. But he comes into Jesus, and Jesus answered and said to him, verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, he would be a kingdom seeker and we're going to talk more about kingdom as we go through this book. John doesn't talk about kingdom as much as like the book of Matthew, but ultimately if you want to be part of the reign of God, you're going to need to be born again. So Jesus makes this profound statement. What's Nicodemus' response? How do we do that? Yeah, we'll get to that point in a second here, Wayne, but yeah, how how do we do that? That is a legitimate question. If I walked up to you and you never knew any Bible terms before, I mean, come on, we all grow grew up hearing terms like, I'm a born-again Christian. So, I mean, we get that a little bit. But let's say you're a Jewish person who's never heard that word before. And Jesus goes, you have to be born again. Whoa, what, what are you talking about? Because you're born one time. You know, there isn't a second time with that. That's not how the body works, okay? I don't know if there's any animals that... Do that. Okay, so it doesn't work out that way. So Nicodemus is confused by this. I know I've told you this story before. One time when I was working for actually Brother Jerry Tyler, we were working in Exeter on his house that we were building. And on the way back from Exeter, I decided to pick up a hitchhiker, which maybe that's not smart, but Christians should be nice people. So I pick up a hitchhiker, and I ended up taking him because he was living on a ditch bank over behind um, like by the chin with Get and go over there. So that's where I was taking him. And so I'm having a conversation with this guy in the car. And I'm like, well, I'm picking up a hitchhiker, might as well be an evangelist, too. So we start talking Bible stuff. And so we're talking back and forth. And he literally asked me this question. It was the coolest moment ever in my entire life. He said, you know, I've always been confused when the Bible says be born again. What does that mean? I was like, oh, there's a passage that talks about that. So we talked about it. But he asked the same question that Nicodemus asked. He said, What does a man have to do to be born again? How's that possible? Because Nicodemus in verse four says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Verse five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. Now before we get into the specifics, I know Wayne mentioned like baptism and things like that here. We're going to talk about some of these specifics in a bit. But the overall idea that Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand is that the birth that I'm talking about is not physical, right? That's why he says, look, you got to be born of water and of of spirit. There's there's a spiritual element to this. Now Nicodemus might be confused by this a lot. Um, He probably had a familiarity maybe with John's baptism already. John the Baptist has been baptizing people and that kind of idea, telling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Baptism does have a teaching throughout Scripture of a renewal process. Even in the Old Testament, there was a cleansing, a a do-over kind of idea. But then when we come into the New Testament time, you know, we see obviously for the remission of sins that happens. But he says one is born of the water and of the spirit. And this idea of the spirit being involved in it is Jesus' way of saying, look, what we are talking about is on a plane that's on a whole nother level than this earth. We're not just talking about a physical action. It might be a physical action, but it has spiritual repercussions to it. For example, Um, Let's say we take communion, okay? You, You take the bread, which represents the body of Jesus, drink of the cup, which represents his blood. In and of itself, all we're doing is eating a tiny piece of dried out bread and drinking grape juice, right? I mean, that's putting it very crassly. However, that physical act transcends to a spiritual reality of us remembering what Jesus did on the cross. There's a communion that takes place between us and him. There's another level there to it baptism is the same way. When we are born of the water, yeah, we're just getting wet, but there's something that happens on a spiritual level too. Nicodemus is confused by this, and we'll talk about that in a second, but let's open it up. Questions or comments so far up through verse five? Yes, they didn't call it being born again. You know what I mean? I think that's what threw him for a curve. If Jesus would have told Nicodemus, hey, by the way, if you are ceremoniously washed in my name, you can enter the kingdom, he probably would have understood more what Jesus was saying. But Jesus does this a lot where he will try to get people to think deeper. So he throws out this phrase, instead of just saying, hey, go down to the mikvah, that's what they call these immersion pools that you have by the temple, and be dunked, and then you can be my child or whatever, that wouldn't have got him thinking. He wants Nicodemus's wheels in his head to start turning. So he says be born again. Well now you're thinking, well what do you mean by that? A new birth, a new beginning? What, what is all this? A transformation process? I mean there's there's a deeper level here than just a checklist, I did this, I was washed, that kind of idea. There's a deeper meaning to this. Other questions or comments. He did. And you know, I don't want to fault him for that because he did what no one else was doing. Yeah, he went at night, but he did go. And by the way, he got to hear one of the most amazing lessons that Jesus ever taught, okay? He got to hear about being born again. He got to hear about the serpent in the wilderness. He got to hear that John three sixteen verse that everybody quotes, right? That was the sermon that Nicodemus heard that was him going to Jesus and just talking to him, asking him questions, saying, we got some questions. Man, what about lessons for us? I mean, well, imagine what we would hear if we just got up and went to Jesus. <laughs> Nicodemus got to hear the sermon that. That even today, football players are putting on their little, what do they call that? It's not eye makeup. That sounds not manly. The little grease they put underneath their eyes that Tim Tebow did, right? The, John three sixteen. that was this sermon that Nicodemus got to hear. Let's go on a little bit, and we'll open it up for some more comments. He says, that which is born of flesh, verse 6, is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay, so when you're born, that's a flesh process. You come out of a body, you are a body, okay? He goes, but when you're born of spirit is spirit. So if I am born again, metaphorically speaking, through the spirit, I become a person of the spirit. For example, Zinni gives birth to Fiona. Fiona is a child of my wife, Zinni, and me. She's a Sabro, you know, that's our baby. She came from us. However, if someone is born of the spirit, they are a child of the spirit they bear the identity of the spirit they belong to god they're a spiritual you know type being in some way verse 7 do not be amazed that i said to you you must be born again um, now think about it right now the look on nicodemus's face this is what i see here jesus just laid this out in front of him and nicodemus doesn't have a huge grasp on the theology of the spirit i mean i mean that's above him a little bit And he's probably got kind of this look of, I don't know, he's confused, befuddled by what Jesus just said. And Jesus says, don't be amazed. I know you're kind of like freaking out a little bit about this. Don't be amazed, verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he gives this illustration in verse 8. And in English, we lose this a little bit, this illustration. Um, If you're new to the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. The Greeks had different words than that, that we use, and a lot of their words are roots of other words, and they sound like other words. And if you're a Greek speaker, you can use that as a way to kind of make a point that maybe you don't see in, in English. Um, for example, if you're on my Instagram, which it's not the most exciting thing, I posted this picture. I thought it was funny. Maybe no one else did. Claire laughed, and Claire likes my sense of humor. It was stormtroopers. You know what stormtroopers are? Do you guys watch Star Wars? Okay, the guys with the guns and the white helmets in in Star Wars were walking through a church building, an empty church building, and pointing at the benches and saying, pew, pew, pew. You get it? These are called pews. The guns go, pew, pew. Now, if I were to tell that joke to someone who speaks Russian, okay, I don't, they might know, um, what the word "pew" is, and they might know the Gun Sound effect, pew pew pew. But "pew" in Russian could be Boris Yeltsin, for all I know. Um, I don't know. Andrew might know "pew" in Russian, but anyway, you don't know. Okay, I was going to say Schlotsky's, but that's Jewish, so that was the first word that came to my head, which is a good restaurant in Fresno. At least it was. I don't know if it's still there. But anyway, so it, you don't see it in English. That's what's going on here. This is a pew 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 verse. So look at verse. Look at verse eight. The wind. Blows where it wishes. The word for wind is a form of the word pneuma. Okay, pneuma. We get the word pneumatic. Ever heard of a pneumatic tool? What's a pneumatic tool? An air tool. Okay, an air tool. Um, so that word we get from this. So he says the wind, the the pneuma. That word there. It blows wherever it wishes, and you hear. The sound of it. The sound of it there is another form of that word, okay? Then he says, he goes on, he says, but you do not know where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. The word for spirit is from the same root word as wind. So he says, you know, you don't know where the wind goes or how the wind does its windy things, but you don't know where the wind of the spirit comes from. It's kind of he does this whole thing here. And he's basically saying this. We do not really understand how the wind works. Where does the wind begin? Now, maybe you weather nerds can tell me, well, actually, when the low-pressure system happens, it creates this, I don't know. But from a general rule, we don't know where wind starts, right? And in the first century, they definitely didn't understand, oh, there's a storm system in the Gulf. That's why there's wind. They didn't get that, okay? So they just know, it came from that way. I can hear it, like, do we see wind? We don't see wind. Yeah, we see results of it. So um, when I'm driving a car in Mojave, and my car is going like this, and people go, why are you swerving? I go, I'm not swerving. It's windy. If my passenger doesn't believe me, I go, look at the bushes. And the bushes are blowing, you know, this way. Evidence of the wind, but you don't see the wind. You Can you hear the wind? Kind of, I mean, you hear it rushing through stuff and that kind of idea. So he says this, he says, the wind blows wherever it goes and you don't even know how that works. He goes, and so is everyone who's born of the spirit. We don't really know how that all works. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Don't be amazed so much by this. That's okay that you don't fully comprehend it. What does it mean that a person is born of the water and spirit you're not gonna fully comprehend that? What does it look like when our sins are washed away? What does it look like when we are justified? What does it look like when we go from being outside of Christ to into Christ, having sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise? What does that look like? We don't know. We don't. We don't know how that operates. There's so much going on around us right now that we can't see. We have no clue how it all works. We just have to go, well, we know it does something because we see the evidence of it, That guy used to be a horrible person. When they started following Jesus, they changed. I don't know how that change happened, but somewhere God was doing something. You get it? And that's kind of what Jesus says here. He says, look, we don't know how this all works, but this is how it is when someone is born of the Spirit. You might not fully comprehend how it works. And you know what? I get probably the most questions today about what does the Holy Spirit do? I don't know, okay? How it all operates. How does God answer prayer? Many different ways. You know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff in there that I don't fully grasp. And Jesus goes, that's okay. Just know this, that I'm not talking about being born of your mom again. I'm talking about being born of the water and the spirit. It's something pretty cool when it happens. Questions or comments? So if you remembered anything, pew pew is also the word for these right here. (laughs) But no. But wind and spirit and blowing is all the same word, just different forms of it. And They would have got that. Nicodemus would have been like, wind, blow, spirit, what are you doing? He would have been kind of like baffled by it too, yeah. It's okay, you don't have to get it, you know. Sometimes we want to understand everything. I've been trying to wrap my mind around the devil in the Garden of Eden this last few weeks. And like how that all operated and how come Eve didn't seem confused when she saw the devil. And like, I mean, like, I don't know how spiritual beings work. And that's kind of this idea here. I they, It's okay to not fully grasp the spirit. Yes, and then Don. Yeah, leave some of that stuff up to him. Absolutely. Yes, Don. There's a difference between maybe just factual, intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge. And when you've experienced it, comprehended it, came to the conclusion through the evidence and all that, it's a whole nother level than just here's what it is. And Jesus does that a lot. In the book of Matthew, which we studied through a while back, what is one thing that Jesus does a lot in his teaching that's designed to get us to think? Parables. Parables. He speaks in these abstract illustrations, and he, at a lot of the times at the end of them, he makes this phrase that says what? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those that are really willing to listen and dig, and they're going to get this but others not, so I think Don's probably right. Jesus wants Nicodemus to, to think a little bit here. Well, verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Like, I, how, how is this gonna happen? Because this is totally different than how it does not compute, right? I mean, have you ever maybe sat down and were reading through the Bible and all of a sudden you're like, that doesn't line up with what I always thought it said. That's totally different. That doesn't compute, that, that hurts my tummy a little bit to think that way, you know, that kind of thing. It's not supposed to do that. And that's kind of Nicodemus right here. He's like, eh, what, what, uh, how can these things be? You know, on Wednesday night, we're going through the book of Galatians right now. Imagine the Jewish first century Christians that are told that all those things you used to do, you're not supposed to be doing those anymore. Well, that, that doesn't compute. I don't get it. What are you trying to tell me? They're like, cannot process this information kind of idea. That's what Nicodemus is doing here. He says, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? He goes, you should get this a little bit. You should think deeper here. Truly, truly, verse 11, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, How will you believe if I tell you the heavenly things? This reminds me, by the way, of chapter one, verse 51 again. Chapter one, verse 51, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you comprehend him, you get layer upon layer of deeper teaching and deeper understanding of, of spiritual matters. Right now, Nicodemus isn't even ready for all that. Nicodemus should be, he's a teacher of Israel, he's a person of influence, he should get some of this. He goes, and you've you've seen evidence, you've seen our key word, testimony, and yet you don't, don't accept the testimony? And I think he's speaking in general terms here, there's people out there that are seeing the evidence, but they're not accepting it. The whole book of John's about this evidence, but he's not accepting. So then Jesus goes, if I told you about earthly stuff and you didn't get that, how are you gonna comprehend heavenly things? This is just the beginning. I'm giving you an illustration about birth. That's an earthly process. We understand how that works. When I start giving you the deeper knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, if you don't get this, how are you going to comprehend that? There's so much more out there for you to experience. Thoughts on this, comments? Yes, Yvonne. Yeah, yeah, we learn stuff all the time. And yeah, we start off with a real physical, basic kind of idea. We talk about it on Wednesday night, if you're in that class, that the old law, the way it was operated, like the Ten Commandments and all that was very much juvenile in how it operated. It was designed to help children, you know? And that's kind of what Paul says in Galatians that now you've grown up. Time to put away the tutor is what he says. And now you move on. And it's the same way with as we grow closer to Jesus and understand his word and his will. This last year with COVID stuff and all that, I spent more time and study than ever. I've grown crazy, like crazy. And and it's, I'm like, how come I didn't know this? I've been preaching for 15 years. I must've been an idiot 15 years ago when I started. You know what I mean? You ever feel that way? And that's how it is when you get deeper and deeper into it. And Paul, or Jesus here tells Nicodemus, look, I'm starting you with this, but I want you to get over here but you gotta comprehend these earthly things first and then, man, you're gonna see some amazing heavenly things. Other comments? Yeah, there's so much that God does that we can't comprehend how he works and sometimes maybe looking back on a situation, we can say, oh man, I totally see the hand of God in that. But at the time, we're like, this isn't working? You know, that kind of idea. Um, I, I want you to also think here because in a second, he's going to give An illustration. Sometimes in Bible circles, we refer to these as types and anti types, shadows and foreshadowing. He's hinting at this already here, too. He's telling Nicodemus, if you can start thinking spiritually here, if you can move past these earthly things, you're gonna get some knowledge of things that are going to blow your mind, is basically what it is. So look what he does here. He says, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. There's no one that you are going to interact with that is up there in the realm of God, okay? And I know we think, well, I thought you're going, a lot of people go to heaven. He's not talking, I don't think about that. He's talking about where God dwells. There's that place. And he says, there's no one that you're going to interact with that has been with God except the one who descended from heaven. Who's the one who descended from heaven to this earth? Yeah, Jesus Christ. We call that the incarnation and all of that process, but that's Jesus. Everybody else dies and will ultimately go with God somewhere, but Jesus came from the realm of God and came to earth. Spiritual realm, to physical, is what Jesus did. He's the only one who does that, which what a huge um, statement he's making to Nicodemus here. This is early in Jesus' ministry, and he's referring to himself as the son of man, which he does often That's kind of, he appeals to his humanity. But he's telling Nicodemus basically that he came from heaven. I can't think of maybe anything before that where he did that. But here he says he descended from from heaven. That's a big statement. Nicodemus's brain is probably spinning in his skull right now as all this is going on. He, this is hard to comprehend. And then he says, as Moses. Oh, he goes. I get Moses. I know Moses, right? He's, he's a Pharisee. He knows about Moses. So then he gives an illustration that he would get. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So whoever who believes in him will have eternal life. This is an example of the spiritual level of the things that he wants Nicodemus to understand. This is another layer of depth of knowledge here. Nicodemus knew the story of Moses and the brazen serpent. If you're not familiar with it, um, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were doing things they weren't supposed to do. God punished them by sending a bunch of snakes to bite them. And they could live if Moses held up this like bronze snake on a staff. And if they looked upon it, they wouldn't die. It's the same symbol that's on your medical alert bracelets and all that. That's that same symbol about that serpent. Because you look on it, you're healed, you don't die. That kind of idea. So that's the story. He goes, as Moses lifted up. So Nicodemus goes, I know that story. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, okay, people looked at the serpent and they lived. He said, so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Nicodemus has no clue what Jesus is talking about here. Now we do because we see the whole story. Nicodemus later is gonna get the whole story too. But he doesn't really know what's gonna happen just yet. Jesus is going to be lifted up too on a stake. Figuratively speaking, all that. He's gonna be lifted up like that serpent. When? On the cross. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have um, eternal life. That's what's gonna happen. So he's telling Nicodemus that just like in the Old Testament, when Moses had that snake on a staff and people looked on it and believed and they were healed, I, the Son of Man, will be lifted up too. And those who believe will have eternal life. Nicodemus has no clue right now. And that's okay. Because the disciples didn't have a clue about this. And let's not be arrogant. None of us would have a clue what he's talking about there too. But what Jesus is doing right here is he's kind of tickling his attention a little bit saying, look, there's another layer of things that you are going to get to understand if you come to me. In the same way that people were saved when they looked upon that serpent, when you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. Nicodemus could understand that. Eternal life, I want that. So he said, born again here, born of water and the spirit, believe in him, you will have eternal life. That's what we want. That's what Nicodemus wants, and that's what Jesus offers. Any thoughts? It is exciting, Yvonne says. Yeah, this is an exciting passage. Man, as Don pointed out, what if Nicodemus hadn't asked any questions? We wouldn't have this. This is that dialogue with Nicodemus. And sometimes we take a passage and we rob it from where it goes. I mean, I bet you a lot of us didn't know that John 3.16 was actually a dialogue of Jesus talking to a man that came to him at night asking questions about eternal life. Probably didn't know that. But yet, when you start to see it in its context here, it brings more. So now look at this next point that Jesus tells Nicodemus, which he's still talking to him. So Nicodemus is sitting here probably baffled at all of this, and his mind's getting open with the scriptures here. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So much here. And we can spend probably a whole quarter talking about just these few verses here. But look at what Jesus tells Nicodemus. And again, Nicodemus probably doesn't comprehend all of it. But the first point he tells him is, you gotta believe, verse 15. Then he says, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, the creation. He loved it so much that he gave his son. Okay, now I know our, our common translation of this is only begotten. We talked about this word earlier back in chapter one as well. This phrase "begotten," I don't like that word. I think it it loses some meaning here. Because when we hear the word "begotten," we think of birthed out, or at least to me, I got it that way. Jesus wasn't made in the same way that humans are made. It's special there. Jesus is not. Jesus is unique in his role. So you have God in the heavens, and God loved the world so much that He gave the unique one, the special one, the one of a kind, Jesus. And really that's, the Greek word is like monogenes, mono meaning one, okay? It's like Jesus is one of a kind. There's no one else like him, no one. We are all begotten of different people, but Jesus is is unique, he's special, he's one of a kind. God so loved the world that he gave his one special, unique, one of a kind son here, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It all hinges upon belief in Jesus. Now, before you go, well, I thought you got to obey and follow. Absolutely you do. We'll talk about that in other passages. But you will not ever obey Jesus if you don't believe in him. And belief in the gospel of John encompasses all of that. Belief in John is I want to turn my life to him. I want to walk in the light. I want to turn away from darkness. I place my faith and trust in him. I lean upon him for all, and I will trust and do whatever he says. That's belief in the gospel of John. It's not just, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. There's a lot of people that don't follow Jesus and say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. They don't believe. True belief is one that follows him. But God so loved this world, this broken world, this world that in chapter one we talk about that didn't even know Jesus, that was in the darkness. God sent his son to redeem that world. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're not gonna die like so many in sin. We're not gonna die, you know, as the animal kingdom does. If we follow Jesus, eternal life is ours. It is a current possession that we have right now, and it'll come to its fullest realization in eternity. We'll have that eternal life. Comments or questions? Yes, Nelly. So Nellie answer. asked if you didn't hear that did Jesus have or that Nicodemus have faith in, in Jesus because he did come and he did, as Nellie mentioned, he acknowledges some things. He says, I know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. I think he had some faith, but I don't think he had it to the depth that he needed to just yet. It's like a lot of people will come to Jesus and go, you're a prophet, aren't you? They believe something about him. Or there's you gotta be from God, but they don't fully grasp the idea of eternal son of God and all that kind of idea. So I think we're seeing the beginnings of a deeper faith in Nicodemus. And that's why I think Jesus is pushing him here because Jesus wants to take him to that next level of his faith. So yeah, I think he had some kind of faith and belief in who Jesus was, but definitely did not have an understanding of what all that entailed. You know, I'll talk to somebody who goes, you know, I think there's a God. And I'll go, that's awesome, let's talk about him because you need to know way more than just, I think there's a God, you know, that kind of idea. Good question. Other comments or thoughts? Yes. Yeah, and they don't comprehend it. In the same way that we don't comprehend where the wind comes from, or how the spirit works, I think. uh, If you didn't hear Karen, she goes, you know, when Moses in the wilderness held up that serpent, there's no power inherently in a, in a, a metal snake on a pole. There is no power in that. Please do not think there is. The power is in Trusting in God and God doing something because of you looking to his mode of redemption. So here you're lost in your death, you're dying. If you wanna be saved, go through this method here of looking to me in this way and I'll redeem you. We don't fully comprehend how being born again fully operates. So I mean, later on, you're gonna have John baptizing people and all of that. Like, wait, 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 hold up here. Why does that, what does me being plunged in water, have to do with anything. It doesn't, but it does when it's on the basis of belief and faith, and there's a spiritual thing that happens there. Also, it's kind of neat when you see this, that way back in the Old Testament, God did something that had a specific purpose at that time that was actually foreshadowing something that was going to happen a whole long time later in the future. And that's the cool thing about scripture is as you start looking through the Old Testament and looking at the New, you're like, wait a second. There's all these things that line up. All these coincidences, right? These shadows and foreshadowing and all these connections. You're like, wait, and then you start reading how the New Testament makes those connections. Like, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, so shall the Son of Man be in the earth. Like, whoa, how'd that work? Yeah. We're not willing to think spiritually. We didn't hear Yvonne. A lot of times we're like Nicodemus where we get it on the physical level, but we're not thinking spiritually minded. And John wants us and Jesus does here to think that spiritual way. Well, we're gonna have to stop right there. We are out of time. We'll have about a 13 minute break and we'll come back in here for our worship time. Please feel free to greet people and, um, and, and make everybody feel welcome. And we're glad you're here. We'll say a prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gospel of John. We pray that we will have a deeper level of faith and understanding of what it means to be born again. And may we live as those that have been reborn in you. And may we teach your message to others. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, you're dismissed before our worship time. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.